Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Well, this morning, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn me to 1 Corinthians 12. We're just going to read our verses where we started last Sunday, and we're going to finish out this section this week. Read down through verse 11. Again, Paul is writing to the Corinthians. He's answering their questions on spiritual gifts, and uh, we'll just set this before us. He says in verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Now, last Sunday, we started looking at verses 12, 13, and 14. And in these chapters, Paul is answering a number of questions posed to him by the Corinthian church. They had reached out to him through a a servant, a messenger, or messengers, with specific questions, and he is responding back to them in these later chapters, answering their questions. And in these chapters, he is addressing these issues of uh, spiritual giftedness and the debate and dysfunction that was present in their midst as they looked at this topic and as they, as they lived it out. And in these chapters, the issue, the primary issue, is this misuse and abuse of the gift of languages or the gift of tongues. Um, that is the heart of the issue, and, um, and we can infer that just by reading through that and looking at what is he talking about, what occupies the bulk of what he says, and we can have a high degree of confidence that that, that was probably the specific issue that was um, pro, you know, troubling them. All these textual clues are kind of laid around like breadcrumbs throughout these chapters, and they guide us as the reader you know, 2,000 years removed from their context to be able to, uh, uh, you know, understand that the languages, the issue of the distribution uh, or misuse of the gift of languages was the the point of departure. And chapter 12, we said by way of overview, was uh, is is a more general word about spiritual gifts. Chapter 13 is a little bit of an interlude on the priority of love, and then he makes application of these principles in chapter 14 on the issue of gifts. Uh, spiritual gifts, particularly prophecy and tongues. The thrust of Paul's correction here is though zeroed in on their abuse of the gift of languages. And that was dividing the church and it was hindering their gospel witness. He talks about that in chapter four. His expectation, God's expectation for his church is that when we come together, that all things would be done decently and in order. And as Paul says in chapter 14, verse 26, All things are to be done for edification, the building up of the body. But that was not happening in their midst. That was not happening on a consistent basis in their midst. And so he wants to set them back on the right track. You can't now, you can't expect, he couldn't expect God's people to rightly understand the spiritual gift of tongues unless they understood the overall picture and purpose of gifts and and that's where he begins here in these opening chapters, in these opening verses of chapter 12. And last Sunday, we looked at just this foundational, the first thing that he lays out here in verses 1 to 3, and that is what does and does not mark out a, a, a truly spiritual man or woman. And we saw the apostle's concern in verse 1. He says, uh, I do not want you to be unaware. And that was the issue. There was a lack of knowledge. There was a lack of uh, understanding in their midst. And Paul needed to backfill that lack of understanding with his apostolic counsel and his correction. He doesn't want them, just as 
We as shepherds would never want you to be unaware of those things. There was serious confusion in their midst about what does it mean to be a mature, spirit-filled people. Now, for the Corinthians, to be spiritual was what exalts me, what draws attention to me individually, rather than what Paul says it should be, which is that which glorifies Christ and builds up the body. That is the mark of a truly spiritual person. And to frame up that contrast, he points out in verse 2 the unbeliever's confusion, we said. He begins in verse 2 by by explaining to them or reminding them of their unbelieving past and how they were blind and ignorant of the true and living God and his ways. He says, you were pagans. You were led astray to the mute idols, however, whatever that looked like for you, however you were led. They were, they were dragged around, he says, like a prisoner, one under judgment. That's what that verb implies. There is a humiliating dimension to false worship. Those caught up in it don't know what they don't know, and they can do no different. They, this, is, this is inevitable. Everywhere they turn, they end up in the same place, worshiping that which is false and an idol which is no God. And that's all of us. We said that's every one of us. We're not by any means exempted from that. Titus 3, verse 3, Paul says, For we were all once foolish and ourselves disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. This is, this is who we were. Uh, even if we had a veneer of, of niceness, if you will, a veneer of of uh, pleasantness to us. Underneath all of that was this. This is what characterized and marked out our lives. It's no surprise then, as he says here, that uh, with that as a starting point, that their eyes had not adjusted to see things rightly and to understand them. And they were not able to discern truth from error or real and counterfeit manifestations of the Spirit. And so he's writing to confront those things and explain them to them, which led into the third and final point, which is the true Christian's confession. He says, therefore, I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. This is uh, verse 3. Paul gives us a a shibboleth, a, a word or phrase that distinguishes someone as part of a group uh, and or not. In this case, the class of people who are being sorted out are those who have the Spirit of God and those who do not. Those who have experienced a work of grace in their lives and those who have not. And, uh, and Paul describes first the kind of speech that would characterize those who only look spiritual but are counterfeit or uh, deceived. And so when Paul says, no one speaking Uh, by the Spirit of God, says Jesus is accursed or anathema, it's entirely possible that we said someone in their midst, some excitable young Christian, poorly taught, blurted this out in the midst of their fellowship and their assembly as some kind of ecstatic utterance or who knows what, because that was so characteristic of false worship at that time. And the rest of the church, not really knowing any better, said, wow, that might be from the Spirit of God, and, and that uh, they weren't sure what to make of those kind of statements. And Paul makes clear that anyone who would say something like that is clearly not under the control of the Holy Spirit. And then he pivots at the end of verse 3 to tell us what is an utterance uh, of a Spirit-filled person. What is a true Christian's confession? What would be a clear and irrefutable evidence that you or I or anyone else is truly being indwelt and led by the Holy Spirit? And he says, the end of verse 3, someone, uh, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. A true Christian, we acknowledge, bows the knee of their heart and affirms with their words, Jesus is Lord. That is the true Christian's confession. And that only by a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Um, He's not talking about a bare intellectual uh, acknowledgement or a mouthing of the words, Jesus is Lord. That's, That's not what he's saying there. What Paul makes clear is that no one will make that confession where their mind and their affections and their will truly agree with that statement without the Holy Spirit having done a work in their heart. So when 
a believer confesses Jesus is Lord, they are confessing absolute allegiance to Jesus as God and Savior. That's what that is bound up in that statement. Jesus is Lord is the Christian's confession, and bound up in that confession is an acknowledgement that he has been raised from the dead, as the scriptures have told us, and that he is the exalted one, having a name that is above every name, as we sang earlier. The Lordship of Christ is not a natural discovery of the intellect alone. It is uncovered and believed upon where God the Holy Spirit has borne a person's heart anew. The ultimate mark of the Spirit's activity is the exaltation of Jesus as Lord and the virtues that flow from that in our lives and the fruits of the Spirit, which we see in Galatians chapter 5. And also things like humility and unity in the church, like in Ephesians 4 and in other places. So whatever takes away from that, we ended last time by noting, begins to move away from Christ and the Spirit's work to a pagan fascination with spiritual activity as an end in itself. It's almost like a fascination with the occult. And when that starts to happen in our churches, and that happens, in, unfortunately, in a lot of contexts, that church is veering off course. And so with that as the foundation, verses 1 to 3, what, what, you know, marking out what does and doesn't you know, identify a, a truly spiritual person. Paul then pivots now in verse 4 and following to explain the necessity of a diversity of giftings in the unity of the one spirit. He is going to give us uh, and explain the necessity of the diversity of giftings in the church in the unity of the one spirit. And so what he does for us here in verses 4 to 11 in particular is give us what I will uh, call a primer. And it's not primer, it's primer. <laughs> primer is what you put on a wall before you paint it. A primer, I guess it's somewhat related, is a simple text that serves as an introduction to this subject of spiritual gifts. It's a, it's a you know, they have primers for reading, teaching young children how to read ABCs and things like that. In a sense, it can also refer to something kind of introductory text. And that is what we have here. It's an elementary overview of this topic so that the Corinthians and you and I properly understand where do spiritual gifts come from? We're able to answer the question what their purpose is, uh, how they might look in the life of the church, and even who ultimately decides whom to whom they'll be given. And so um, that, that is essentially what we're seeing here in these verses. Now, it's worth mentioning at the outset, before we even jump into our outline, that Paul's argument here in chapter 12 is spun off somewhat off the cuff. It, and it doesn't make it any less authoritative or inspired or anything, but, but it's, it's off the cuff. It's peculiar to their situation and their, their church context. You can see that in the language that he uses, and we'll, we'll pull some of these points out as we go. But the language he uses in these verses is, is clear, and his argument is clear, but it's not necessarily very carefully worked out or by any means exhaustive. It is not meant to be comprehensive. There are times when you read Paul, and we've seen this even in the earlier chapters of 1 Corinthians, where he is maddeningly precise and nuanced, and crafted in the way that he makes his argument. And then there are times where he's more free-flowing, and that's what we see him doing in these verses. This would be one of those times where things are more free-flowing. And to give you an example of what I'm talking about, if you look through chapters 12, 13, and 14, every list of spiritual gifts, and not just there, in Ephesians and in Romans, the lists are not the same. In other words, there's some overlap, but then some lists have some things and some lists don't. So, so he's using these lists and he's just kind of throwing them together, but there's no comprehensive list anywhere. And another example of what I'm talking about, in one section he'll use a particular term, like he does in verse 4, to speak of spiritual gifts. And in another section he'll use a different term to describe the same thing. Or... In the one chapter, he'll use uh, one term to describe a basket of gifts, and in another chapter, he'll use that one term to, to describe um, a completely different gift that's not even part of that list. In other words, 
I don't think Paul is overly concerned with giving them a detailed instruction about every little spiritual gift. Their number, their kind, their duration, that kind of thing. That is not what he's attempting to do here. He's not giving us a systematic study on spiritual gifts. It's an overview. It's a primer. His goal here is to give us a representative list of spiritual gifts and to give them that list, really, so that they will stop fixating on tongues because they were so preoccupied with the gift of tongues, these showy kind of public manifestations of tongues. And we mentioned this in Equipping Hour a few months ago when we went through the doctrine of the church. And I think maybe we even covered some of this on Sunday evening, one, one Sunday evening. But I think some of the hair splitting that theologians do to try and group the gifts and name the gifts and organize them, I think a lot of that is um, tilting at windmills, if you will. It's just not there. It's just, that's not Paul's purpose. Um, it, is a, it is, I think, a futile attempt. It's, I understand it's, it's from the right motivation, but I think in some ways it's a futile attempt to find more in the text than even Paul or God intended. Um, yes, there are categories of gifts. We said there are gifts that are active in the church today, and there are some that are confirmatory sign gifts. I think that's probably the big split. But beyond that, we don't necessarily need to get too fixated on the trees what we don't want to do in, in looking at the trees is to lose sight of the, the forest. So just all that to say by way of, um, I guess, introduction, that I don't think in these chapters specifically Paul is giving us a comprehensive study on spiritual gifts. With that said, though, we're going to break the text down into four, four sections this morning. Uh, the first section comes to us in verses 4 to 6, and that is we see the author of spiritual gifts the author of spiritual gifts in verses 4, 5, and 6. He says, Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord, and there are varieties of effects or activities, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Now, the opening sentence here is the, is the key to decipher how we understand everything else that's in this section. Gifts here, and if you have the NAS, um, you may see that um, there, there, or depending if, if you have ESV or something like that, you might see a, a, an asterisk or you might see a little sub, um, a footnote or in, a, a index there. And the, the word that is used here in the original language is just one word. And it, I, I, I don't bring up the Greek a lot because I don't think it's essential for understanding that our Bible is a faithful translation. But this is a term worth mentioning because we, we understand the term. The word in Greek is charismaton, which is from which we get the word grace, right? Many of you have at least entertained the thought of naming one of your children, if you're younger, charis, right? Because that word, right? am I right? Am I right? <laughs> It's just the names are like that. They have waves. They become more popular at different times. And in Christian circles, that is, it's, it's a beautiful name, and it means grace. And that's, so we understand what that word means. And so charismaton has the idea of that which pertains to the spirit, uh, and particularly the gracious gift. It, it points up the unmerited, undeserved generosity of the gift. It can be used in a kind of general sense of God's good gifts, like it is in Romans 11 and verse 29, where he says the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Or it can be used more specifically to refer to a spiritual gift in general that Paul longed to impart to the church in Rome, for example, in his opening verses of the book of Romans in chapter 1, verse 11. He says, I long to impart some spiritual gift to you to come and to do that. But typically, in the New Testament, it's used to refer to the special endowment or gift of the Holy Spirit within his chosen people. And the Corinthians were apparently latching on to such grace gifts as a matter of personal pride. It, it would matter a lot more to them than it probably should have. And they were pitting one another in the church against the other based upon this gift or that gift. So the gifts become essentially another way in which the church was stoking division in their ranks. 
We saw that back in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and even actually chapter 4, same thing. He brings up this point that, that they were using wisdom and the world's view of power as a way to look down upon Paul and divide the church. And they're doing the same thing here in these later chapters with spiritual gifts. And what Paul is going to explain simply but profoundly is that this is contrary to who God is. This is contrary to God himself. Look at the parallelisms here in verses 4, 5, and 6. He says, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God. There is a diversity in the endowments the Spirit gives, but it's the same Spirit. That's, that's, that's what he says. The Spirit doesn't fight against himself. There are different kinds of ministries or service, service services, but the differences aren't important. It's the same Lord. And he says there are different kinds of effects or activities, but it's the same God. And you might ask yourself, hey, is there any significance to the different persons that are identified here? In verse 4, he speaks of the Spirit. In verse 5, he speaks of the Lord. In verse 6, he speaks of God. I'm glad you asked because, yes, there is significance. I can read your minds. There is the Trinitarian formula articulated here is, I think, all the more impressive because it seems to be almost although it is intentional, it is incidental as Paul writes in these verses. That's what makes it so magnificent. These verses, 4, 5, and 6, were hugely important for Athanasius. If you know anything about church history, Athanasius defended uh, vehemently with much writing and, uh, and at great cost to himself uh, the Trinity and, and the realities of Christ and who Christ is. And he argued on the basis of this text, along with others, that Paul's intimate association of the Holy Spirit with the activity of the Father and the Son means, quote, that there exists, he says, an essential unity between the three. And so from these verses, Athanasius draws out this glorious reality that all the persons of the Trinity participate in a unified activity which may be thought of as the action of the whole Godhead as the Trinity. It's an essential doctrine known as inseparable operations. Athanasius says this on verses 4, 5, and 6. He says, The gifts which the Spirit divides to each are bestowed from the Father through the Word, meaning the Son. For all things that are of the Father are of the Son also. Therefore, those things which are given from the Son in the Spirit are gifts of the Father. When the Spirit is in us, the Word also who gives the Spirit is in us, and the Word is in the Father. End quote. So in, this, in his careful study of this passage along with others, he points out that Paul views the Father as the source of spiritual gifts. They come from God, the Son is the mediator of those gifts. They come through the Lord, and that is to be activated by the agency of the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit. And if you remember, way back when, when we began studying this letter, we did a, a little introduction on the Trinity, and we pointed out that everything is from the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. Only as you and I become sharers in the Spirit by faith do we experience the love of the Father and the grace of the Son. So experientially, in time and space, for you and for me, the persons of the Trinity are inseparable. We don't have three gods. We are not tritheists. Even if various texts point out that the Son is doing this work or the Father is doing this work, that certain works are said to be the proper work of the individual persons, that is in reference to the internal relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see, Jeff, explain it to me like I'm five. God the Father isn't over here doing one thing. God the Son isn't over here doing something else. God the Spirit isn't over here doing a third thing. That's the point. Whatever the Father is doing, the Son is doing. And whatever the Son is doing, the Spirit is doing. He does not fight against himself. In time and space, outside of himself, 
Everything that God does, he does as God. So Athanasius concludes, the spirit is not outside the word, meaning the son. And so spiritual gifts are given in the triad. The same spirit and the same Lord and the same God is the one who works all in all. And you see that at the end of verse 6. So like a threefold cord, not easily broken, Paul ties together this strong argument that there's no basis whatsoever for division and dissension among Christians on the basis of spiritual gifts because it's one and the same God who provides the gifts in all of their variegated color. That's why it matters. The triune God, who is himself the great three-in-one, who works all things in all, is the same God responsible for the diversity of giftings in the one body, which is his church. And there is a diversity and unity within, and as there is a diversity and unity within the Godhead, by analogy, not a perfect analogy, but by analogy, there is a diversity and unity within Christ's body, the church. In all the variety of spiritual gifts that the triune God graciously gives to his people, in all that variety, yet one and the same God stands behind all of it. It's all the same God, and he works as one. And they are all moving to the same singular purpose. So God is the, the triune God is the author of spiritual gifts. That leads into our second point in verse 7, the aim of spiritual gifts. We see the author in verses 4 to 6, the aim of spiritual gifts in verse 7. He says, to each one, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, to each one is significant. We can't, you know, every, every jot and tittle is important here. Every born-again believer has some spiritual, gracious gift from God. We all do. So if you have the Holy Spirit within you, and everyone who belongs to Christ does, as Romans 8 and 9 says, because if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, he's not, you're not his, then you have been given, Paul says, a manifestation of the Spirit, which is just another way to speak of spiritual gifts. See, he's just kind of grabbing terms and throwing them around. He's pointing out that spiritual gifts and the exercise of those gifts are something public and plain for all to see. You can see that. Spiritual gifts are something that others in the church besides you perceive and experienced, and this is the key, are advantaged by, that are built up. You might think God's given you the gift of encouragement or helps or teaching or whatever gift you think you have, gifts you think you have, but if no one else around you in the church is being encouraged or helped or taught by your ministry of God's word, either formally or informally, it is highly improbable that God has gifted you in those ways. When I was in seminary, there were some men that I don't know how they got in, but they did not understand that part of being a pastor means teaching the Bible. And when it came to preaching and teaching laboratory where you would preach and get feedback, these men struggled. And, uh, and some of these men, I don't think, ever had anybody tell them that you don't have that gift. And even though we have given you every tool possible to help you along the way, you're, you're just not quite there yet. And that was a tough pill for some of them to swallow. But, you know, again, we're not all gifted in the same ways. Our gifts are meant to be, be experienced and benefiting others because that is their aim or purpose. He says it is the common good, the common good. The manifestation of the Spirit serves the common advantage and benefit of others. That's what that word means. So he doesn't give us gifts to make us feel good about ourselves. And he doesn't give us gifts to add a sense of personal fulfillment to our lives. They're, the gifts that he blesses us with are not a vehicle to raise our status or standing in the church. The gifts are distributed to each one, not for rivalry or jealousy, but for the common good, the benefit of all. Spiritual gifts are always given to be put to work and to be put to work in such a way as to build up Christ's church not necessarily you 
as the individual. Now, you will be built up as you, you know, if, if you have the privilege of teaching and preaching, you know, as you study and, and prepare, you learn, and you're benefited. Hopefully, that's doing a work in your heart. And even as you might minister God's Word to others in an informal context, you, you might be thinking ahead how you want to explain things and make sure you know what passages you'd want to point to or whatever. So we're, it's not that we aren't advantaged or benefited personally, but that's not their primary purpose. That's kind of accidental, if you will. So a divisive individualism contradicts the purpose of the gifts. A lone wolf Christianity, which we've talked about before, contradicts the purpose of the gifts. Wandering around the periphery of the local church for months or years contradicts the purpose of the gifts. Because if you're in Christ, you're meant to be vitally connected and committed to the local church and to use your gifts within that context. That's why we have church membership, formal association. So we've seen the author of the gifts. We have seen the aim of the gifts. Thirdly, we see the assortment of spiritual gifts in verses 8, 9, and 10. Paul says, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. Again, just reiterating what we said earlier, this is not a comprehensive list. This is not an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. It is representative. It's, it's considerable, but it's not, rep, it's not comprehensive. It's representative of the manifold ways that the triune God gifts individuals for the building up of his body. First, he points out words of wisdom and knowledge in verse 8. One man has the word of wisdom, the other the word of knowledge. These are broad terms. I think they're intentionally broad. In the apostolic age, it may have included revelation at times, not always, but at times. In the New Testament, wisdom is used often to refer to the ability to understand God's will and apply it faithfully. So wisdom emphasizes that spirit-enabled capacity to apply truths discovered in the Word of God, the ability to make skillful and practical application of Scripture in life's situations, which obviously look different for different contexts at different seasons of life. Likewise, a believer with the gift of knowledge could be someone highly trained in the biblical languages or um, some other academic discipline like history or archaeology or theology or anything like that, and God can use that training, even if that's in a secular context or before Christ, he can use that when they come to Christ to, uh, as they minister their gifts. So he can take your natural abilities and amplify them for his purposes. At the same time, another person with very little formal education might also have that same giftedness and that capacity and an ability to comprehend spiritual truth. I've run across so many wonderful saints over the years whose background is just, they were just faithful. They served the church. They studied the word of God for themselves. They had great insight into the word of God. They're gifted with wisdom and knowledge, and that is a supernatural gift. They don't have that apart from the grace of God in their lives, and they're able to uncover truths from their study of Scripture and also explain and interpret those truths for others. That's where the others focus comes in. It's not just that you know these things, but you're able to disseminate that idea, those truths to others and to help others know those things as well. The gift of faith in verse 9. To another, he says, faith by the same spirit. This gift of faith is an extraordinary ability that some believers have. We all have faith, but this is an extraordinary measure of faith to trust God in difficult and demanding ways. It's the ability to trust God in the face of overwhelming obstacles and human impossibilities. Those with the gift of faith have this unique capability to lay claim to the promises of God, and they do that largely through the discipline of prayer as they pray and trust God to fulfill his word. And, of course, church history is replete with these kinds of individuals, and I'm sure you've come across them in your various church contexts. These are people who have 
faced unprecedented difficulties and dangers in church history, especially faced death before their faith in Christ, and they did so with an unwavering trust in the Lord, exercising that faith in such a way that, that their trust and their ministry went forward regardless of their circumstances, and they strengthened others. Like Paul says in the beginning of Philippians, where he says, you know, others are, I go to prison and it's encouraging others as I kind of, I'm faithful to the things God's given me to do. He says, um, others are, are strengthened and able to proclaim Christ with, with greater faithfulness and without fear. And so his faith strengthens others. The gifts of healing. The word healing here is in the plural in verse uh, Nine, the end of verse 9, and other gifts of healing. It's plural in the original language as well, meaning that there are many kinds of afflictions that might need healing. We saw this, uh, of course, you see this in the life of Christ during his earthly ministry. Um, Matthew uh, has all kinds of examples of Christ healing the blind and the lame and uh, those who are deaf. We see them working out in the apostles. He, he delegates that authority to them as they go out and preach the gospel in the gospels, the gospel records. And, um, and then he gives that responsibility and, and privilege to the 70 and to some associates who are connected to the apostles like, like we see in Acts chapter 8. God has the prerogative now, just as he's always been, to heal directly and miraculously in response to the prayers of his children. But we would say and affirm, and we'll get into the why of all that later, but no Christian today has the gifts of healings. Um, I didn't notice anybody wandering through the hallways of ICUs last few years, praying over the, those who were dying of COVID and miraculously and instantaneously hearing, healing them, which is what this gift entails. No one has this gift because no one with a word or touch instantaneously or completely healed all who came to them. No one can do that. No one raises the dead. So this gift of healings was a signed gift. It was temporary in nature, given to the church for authenticating the word of God as it was preached. And again, verse 10, the affecting of miracles is similar along those lines, except instead of just physical healing, it could deal with other temporary signs. A miracle is a supernatural intrusion into the natural order of things. Natural laws cannot explain. They're only explainable through divine intervention. Maybe that's striking someone with instantaneous blindness or something, as we see sometimes in the Gospels or or something along those lines. That's it's kind of a broad thing. But at that time, there were, there were some that had this gift, again, as a confirmation of them being God's messenger. He speaks also of the gift of prophecy. Prophecy speaks to those, uh, means those who speak forth to proclaim. It assumes the speaker has an audience, so it can have the idea of speaking publicly. A prophet is someone who speaks forth God's word, and prophecy is the proclaiming of that word. There's a lot of debate on this. We're not going to get too far into the weeds. But the gift of prophecy is spirit-given, it is spirit-empowered, and it is that ability to proclaim the word of God effectively. Since the completion of the canon, since we have the word of God, that no longer includes, includes new revelation. We're not getting... There are no prophets in the world coming out with new, inspired revelation. But those who speak prophetically may proclaim that which has been revealed in the Word of God. I think a simple definition, it's not a comprehensive definition, but a simplistic definition is in chapter 14 and verse 3. Paul says, One who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. We'll talk about that more when we get to chapter 14. He also says that God gifts uh, individuals with what he calls the, distinct, the gift of distinguishing of spirits. Discernment is really the idea. The basic meaning is they're able to examine and judge what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false. Someone who has the gift of discernment has this spirit-wrought ability to recognize that which is false 
from God's word. One commentator calls this the gift, uh, calls this gift the Spirit's watch, watchdog. I think is a good uh, word picture. Some ideas that are given uh, as scriptural and put forward as true on the surface seem right and, and godly, but they're actually false. They're counterfeit. They would lead others astray. And those who have the gift of discernment are, are counterfeit experts. And it doesn't mean that uh, it doesn't mean that they are perfect, but God gives them a special insight and understanding for the protection and the preserving and the health of the local church. I want to just make a word of incur- a word of a caveat here. Most of them don't have blogs and podcasts. Okay. Because when you run into those people, more often than not, they're not using this gift of discernment that they claim to have for the building up of the body, but for the tearing down, the, 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 basically the accusing of the brethren. They're doing Satan's work, most of them. Now, there are individuals that are doing good work and they're a help to us, but by and large, those who claim to have the gift of discernment don't. They have the gift if you want to call it a gift, of division. They have the gift of slander. They have the gift of gossip. And the way they go about it shows that they are not leading, they're not building up the body, they're tearing it down. So, so we need to be careful. And of course, then he ends here with the speaking of the gift of languages and tongues. Most, this is the most misunderstood and controversial gift then, just like it is now. I mean, nothing changes. And... Um, it is a gift of languages is really, the, I think, a better way to translate this. I know tongues has the idea of, of kind of, um, it's captured, but they're discernible languages, and we'll get into that later as we get into chapter 14. But those who have the gift of languages were able to speak languages, real languages, that other people who spoke those languages would understand, but they were able to do that without having studied those things for themselves. It is, in a sense, a way that God undoes the curse of Babel. And so God is able to get the gospel out to cultures and individuals. As you see in Acts chapter 2, they're speaking languages, identifiable languages, and everyone's heard them speaking in their own tongue. And that's what he's talking about here. And some had that, again, as a sign and as a way to distribute that gospel message quickly across the globe, and he says wherever there is the teaching, uh, excuse me, the, the gift of tongues, there will also be the interpretation of tongues. They will be able to uh, take what is being said and to translate it for all to understand, and Paul will explain in chapter 14 why you can't have one without the other. Again, we'll, we'll get into that more in the subsequent study, but these were sign gifts They were temporary. They are not for the church today. Their ministry in the New Testament was to validate the message, to disseminate the message of the power of the gospel. But in Corinth, just as they are today, they were disproportionately exalted and abused in the church. We'll talk about that more in the coming weeks. So this is is an assortment of the gifts This is particular, I think, to them because this is one of the earliest letters in the New Testament. At that time, these things were still going on. As the New Testament is being written, as Paul is writing and James and all these other guys are coming in and they're being carried along by the Spirit and the Gospels are coming together, they needed these particular sign gifts to impart spiritual truth, to discern truth from error, to get the Gospel out there. But as those things were no longer necessary as the apostles passed away. And the testimony of church history is consistent. No one was seeing these gifts in the third, fourth century. They, 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 uh, they basically throw up their hands and say, we don't know what this looked like because we don't see that today. So, Lastly, we end with the allocation of the gifts in verse 11. The allocation of the gifts, that's our fourth point. This is where Paul ends Who decides which gifts are given to whom? He says, But to each one the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Paul closes out this section of his argument by summing up what's been said 
up to this point. The language of one and the same spirit mirrors what he said in verses 4, 5, and 6, and again in verses 8 and 9, emphasizing diversity within unity. These are his works, God's works. God's gifts are never set against each other. All who have them, and every believer has them, cooperate in working out the one divine purpose of building up the church. We're building one another up. Thus, from beginning to end, the singular accent of this section is the diversity of gifts that the one God distributes, manifests through his one spirit for the sake of the church. The only thing that's added here at the end is the little phrase, just as he wills. Here we see Paul unmistakably do two things. One, he describes the personhood of the Holy Spirit. He's not an it. He's a he. He's a person. He is like the Father and the Son, God, a very God, and he is distinct from the Father and the Son. The emphasis here also lies on how the God, the Holy Spirit, in perfect concord with the Son and the Father, exercises absolute sovereignty in distributing his gracious gifts. He's the one that determines who receives what. And the implications of this are pretty straightforward. Practically speaking, one, we should never look at others in the church and covet how God has gifted them. Just... Don't do that. We don't need to be jealous of other people's gifts. You know, you can hear someone sometimes, and I do this all the time, you hear someone preach, and you think, wow, you know, what, what, a, what a gifted communicator. What, what insight, what passion, what zeal. And uh, for someone who teaches and preaches regularly, I can, I can start to feel like, man, I, I wish I could do that, you know, in a way that that's not about... Christ, but it can be about me, that people would look up to me and, and invite me to speak at things or whatever, right? And God says, no, 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 don't do that. You know, just because someone has this gift of, of lead, you see this all the time, leaders in the church, people who want to be in leadership, but they're not qualified or they're not ready, and they, they want in no matter what. Don't do that. Guard against that. God gifts how he gifts. And secondly, we shouldn't grumble or complain for how God has gifted us. Maybe we don't have a real public-facing ministry, and that's not even something that, that we want to do, but, we, but we, can, we, we can feel like, well, I'm just bumbling along with my kind of pathetic little gifts. And no, that's not, that's not it at all. God has sovereignly, purposely, and for his glory, given you whatever gifts and capacities he's given you. Praise him for that. Serve him with joy. The perfect wisdom of the triune God has given you spiritual gifts for the building up of the body in love. And we should be looking to serve others in whatever ways that God would allow as every opportunity presents itself. The best way to do that isn't to take an inventory of gifts and then say, I only do this, but I don't do that. No, you come into the local church and you say, what needs to happen here? What can I help with? And then you just do whatever needs to be done. I remember when I first got saved, I was a young person in my early 20s. Um, I had no experience with children whatsoever. And I came to our church and I plugged in myself in. I had new, new Christian and I said, I, I need to serve. I want to serve. And they needed someone to listen to three, four, and five-year-olds recite Awana verses and like make a chart. And they said, we do that. And we have a wana on Wednesday nights. We could really use some extra hands with that. And that was pretty much the last thing I wanted to do, the last thing I was equipped to do. And I'm not making myself the hero of the story, but I said, okay, well, if that's where the need is, that's what I'll do. And you know what? I did it for a season, and it wasn't easy. <laughs> and I was goofy and awkward, you know, as, as, as um, goofier, I should say, and awkwarder than I am now dealing with kids. And, and I did my best to bring myself down to their level and to encourage them. And, and that's what I did. And every Wednesday night, I'd show up and they would recite as best they could what they were memorizing. And we'd put it on their little charts and give them their little badges or whatever. And, uh, 
And, you know, eventually that led into other things. And, and then I started picking kids up. And we, they had, a, they had a, a ministry to ferry kids in and out of the neighborhoods near the church to bring them to church. And, again, not really my wheelhouse. Child care, not really my wheelhouse. But I, we did it, and, and I did it, and, and that led to other opportunities that eventually led opportunities to teach. And then when that happened, others were able to come alongside and, and to affirm that and, and, and stoke those fires and get me kind of moving in that direction all kind of fell on, falling in my lap and not even looking for it necessarily. And I would encourage you, just jump in and serve. Do whatever God gives you to do in a church and, uh, and see where that takes you. Don't limit yourself to this or that. Clothe yourselves, each one of us, with humility like Christ. Paul says in Philippians 2, put your, their needs, others' needs above your own and see where that takes you. Because honestly, if you're faithful, if you're available, if you're teachable, God will use that and he will build up his church. So this is just a primer. This is just an introduction. We see the author, the aim, the, the assortment of gifts, and lastly, the um, <laughs> allocation. <laughs> allocation of the gifts. And then beginning now in verse 12 and following, which we'll pick up to the end of the chapter next week, he's going to give us some wonderful word pictures, some analogies to reinforce these points. He says, For just as the body is one, yet has many members, all and all the body, all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, he says, so also is Christ. And all the implications that flow from that. We'll see that next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this study. Thank you for the little extra time that we were able to carve out to look at these things this morning. We pray that our church would be marked out by those who make that good confession that Jesus is Lord, and that having made that good confession, we would take those gifts and capabilities and, and, and uh, skills that you've given us and minister that to others and to build up this body. Lord, help us to be uh, showing honor to even the least honorable, the least prominent things. And those who have a more public-facing ministry recognize that we don't even need that affirmation or encouragement but may all things be done for your honor and glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.